0: I'm Ava Hartling, welcome to The Brand Female, where every week I speak with women changemakers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, women entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Due to our pandemic experience, we've all had to revisit the way we approach eating and meal prep. And we know that often the burden of meal planning falls on women a little more often than on men, along with other duties such as childcare. However, if you're a man listening to this and you're the cook in your household, we see you and we love you. And this is why I'm happy to partner with Good Food for this episode of the Brandy's Female podcast. Good food is truly revolutionizing the Canadian grocery experience as we know it. As a busy entrepreneur who is usually on the go, I'm here for all of it. Although home-cooked meals have become a new staple in my home, thank you Lockdown. Good food makes it ultra easy to try new food and flavors with their fast delivery in as little as one hour. I can choose between restaurant quality meal kits, ready to eat foods and quality grocery selection, which truly gives me access to fun and healthy meals whenever I want. This is great for families or if like me, when you're cooking for just one. For Toronto and Montreal listeners, you can now take advantage of free one-hour delivery and for everybody else, free same-day delivery. Visit MakeGoodFood.ca to learn more about how to get farm-fresh ingredients and chef-designed meals – and that would be a woman chef – delivered to your door fast. In this week's episode, you'll meet Emma Gilchrist, co-founder of The Narwhal, the pioneer of non-profit journalism in Canada focused on the coverage of environmental issues. Emma is a reporter, editor, and public speaker who started her journalism career over 15 years ago and who went on to launch the Narwhal with co-founder Carol Linnett in 2018. She earned a journalism degree from Mont Royal University in Calgary, and she worked as a reporter and editor in Canada and the UK, including some time at the Calgary Sun and Calgary Herald. It is there that she created a weekly environmental column and website called The Green Guide, which won multiple awards and ultimately inspired her to create a standalone publication dedicated to environmental issues. In 2017, Emma was recognized by Canada's Clean 50 for building a powerhouse environmental investigative journalism outlet. And that is one of many awards she's received. This is my first conversation in our new series, The Politics is Female, and today you'll hear Emma weigh in on what environmental issues, along with issues that intersect, we should be paying attention to. Here is our conversation. Emma, it's such a pleasure welcoming you on The Brand is Female today. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. I typically start these conversations uh, by going back in time, and I'm I'm going to do the same thing with you. And I'm curious to ask you, when you were growing up as a, a, a younger girl, uh, what kind of career did you imagine you'd be doing later in life? Yeah, wow, that's such a good question. I think When I was
1: really young, I never really knew, although I always just said that (laughs) I was audacious, I guess. I always said that I was going to change the world someday, but I wasn't exactly sure how. And then Mm. when I got into my teens is when I really got into writing. And so I was really interested in politics and writing. And
0: from kind of high school time, I had started to think about journalism Tell me about that path, right? Uh, Did you did you go to journalism school specifically? Was it kind of clear that you know this is what you study, and then it would be kind of a direct path to becoming an editor or journalist?
1: Yeah. So I, I couldn't decide. Um, so I applied to a bunch of different schools for a bunch of different things, um, psychology, writing, public relations, journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I ended up getting a, an entrance scholarship to Mount Royal in Calgary, uh, for, for the journalism program. And so that kind of made the decision for me. Um, and, you know, at that time, there was still a lot of talk, even then that was around 2002 of, you know, what a hard industry journalism was, that there weren't going to be any jobs when we got out of school. Mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a direct path, but it was, you know, a decent kind of shot at it. And I mean, most of Canada's really well-known journalism schools are in Eastern Canada. Um, but this was sort of one of the only options in Western Canada. And I grew up in Northern Alberta. So I I moved like eight hours south to
0: go to college in Calgary. Oh, wow. And tell me about, you know, when you hit the job market, or maybe it was, you know, trying to get your your first internship. um, What was that experience like? And I asked to You know, I I don't think it's fair to say that women are underrepresented in journalism, although I'd love to hear your take on it. But I think there are specific challenges around being a woman journalist, right, especially outside of the lifestyle and fashion uh, beats. Uh, So wondering what that felt like and what your, you know, what your impressions were trying to uh, get your first job, basically.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was really of the view that you kind of had to take like any job that that you could get. My very first job was in England, actually, in my dad's hometown. I had applied to, I think, close to 50 different newspapers in England, trying to find my first kind of four-month practicum placement over there. And eventually, I convinced this one newspaper in a in a small town to take me on. Um, and that turned out to be a really wonderful experience. And I ended up staying there for a full year, actually. And then when I moved back to Calgary to finish my degree, I got a job as a copy editor at the Calgary Sun. um, And I was there for about a year and a half. And then the way that I kind of broke my way through to the next level is I actually did get a job in the lifestyle department uh, at -hmm. the Calgary Herald. And I, uh, I pitched at that point. I had just come home from England and there was such a big contrast between the environmental consciousness happening in England at that time and in Calgary. And so I pitched Mm. this guide uh, called the green guide to the Herald as in my interview process uh, to kind of write this guide for how Calgarians could be more environmentally conscious. And that's, that's really how it all got started. It helped me get hired um, out of a sea of candidates and it, that was the beginning of my kind of
0: path towards environmental journalism as well. Hmm. And I, who was kind of a source of inspiration for you did you have role models you were looking up to I'm curious to know if there were you know women in journalism specifically maybe and maybe it was more on the activism side yeah it's a good
1: question i don't think there was anyone um in particular it was there, I I was a really big fan of like certain publications. I was like really into ad busters at the time, which is, you know, this kind of unique Canadian magazine started out of Vancouver that didn't run any ads and it was really kind of like counterculture. Um, Hmm. so I was a really big fan of that. And I, I had taken a lot of inspiration from my time in England and just looking at, there was such good journalism in England. Like, um, I think in Canada, a lot of journalism is, it's just kind of in this kind of mediocre place. It's not terrible, but it's also not great. And in England, there's really bad journalism and really amazing journalism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I'd taken inspiration from a lot of the more kind of accessible, like consumer facing journalism that like really kind of spoke to people in a way that helped them make sense of the world. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that. And then at the Herald, um, I had a really wonderful boss and editor there too named Valerie Branny. And she's kind of gave me my big chance and she really nurtured me into building the green guide
0: and let it take flight. And she she was amazing. Fantastic. Um, curious to know with the green guide and kind of that, you know, what you, you spoke about kind of Uh, I guess, breaking into Calgary with, um, you know, environmental journalism. And I I can imagine how Calgary was, you know, not the the greenest of cities, especially at that time, it's still not today. Um, What was the reaction like? What was your, you know, how was your work received? Yeah, it was actually really positive. And I think, you know,
1: this is kind of one of the things that I've learned over and over again in my career is like, just sort of like, um, you know, what you see on the outside or on the surface isn't necessarily what's under the surface. And, mm-hmm. you know, Calgary, well known for being kind of the hub of the, you know, oil energy, and energy industry and um, quite a conservative city. Also, a ton of people live in Calgary because it's really close to the Rocky Mountains and they love the outdoors. Um, And so there is actually quite a strong environmental ethic there. And there's a lot of people are really craving more information on on what they could do. And the green guide quickly became quite a popular part of the newspaper and it, it grew into an actual, it was the whole section. Uh, it became the whole lifestyle section of the newspaper every Friday. Mm. Um, wow. and it, yeah, got a lot of accolades and a lot of support from editors because the, the reader research was showing that people were really into it. We really engaged the readers too, in a cool way. Like we did a ton of mm. Q and A's and events, um, And we had like a special at the time. It was like kind of innovative to have like a special website where we collected like all of the stuff we did. So we were building out this ever growing online guide for people. Um, And so, yeah, it was received super well
0: and it was really, really fun. Mm, that that's great to hear. And I want to fast forward a little bit and talk about when you branched out and started or, or you know, uh, decided to launch your own publication. Would love to know about uh, how the idea came about and uh, what, you know, what what was that process like for you?
1: Yeah, so there were kind of some, some intervening years there. So I think I was around... Um Maybe 25 when I left the Herald. And at that point, I had seen so many rounds of layoffs in the newspaper industry. It was really depressing. It didn't feel like a land of opportunity. I didn't, I just couldn't accept that that was sort of like the pinnacle of my career and it wasn't going to get much better than that. Um, And I had also kind of got on this journey of trying to truly understand how individuals can have an impact on the future of the planet. And uh, I reached this point in that journey where I couldn't answer those questions anymore um, Mm. working at the Herald. So I left and I went and I worked in the environmental nonprofit sector for about five years. Um, And so it was really through that that I eventually found my way back to journalism, but I combined the two things. So, I combined that kind of traditional journalism training I had in the newspaper experience with what I'd learned in the nonprofit sector about how to build a movement and how environmental policy is actually made, um, how to fundraise, all of those things. And that's really how the narwhal came about.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell me about something you've learned. I mean, launching any—you know—launching a business is is always tough to start with, and then launching your own media publication. You know, in a in a world where usually you know there's a, there's a handful of large players that kind of dominate the news industry. Um, what were some lessons or obstacles that maybe you didn't foresee uh, when you when you first came out with the project?
1: Yeah, I mean it was always a really uphill battle to get credibility as a online news outlet and a new um news outlet i think one of the things that i've learned is that um it sounds kind of cheesy, but that your kind of wildest visions can come true. Like we came mm-hmm. up with a really audacious vision that we were going to be, you know, really playing in the big leagues and, uh, you know, winning lots of awards and having credibility along the traditional newsrooms. And it seemed like pie in the sky at the time, mm-hmm. um, because we were struggling, um, to even get into like the press gallery at the BC legislature and things like that. Right. Um, But, you know, within a couple of short years, that all changed. And so, you know, by really having a vision of where you want to go and where you want the sector to go, um, I think that really paid off Um, in terms of obstacles. I'd say a lot of it has been on the just like growing pain side of things, needing to, you know, hire a lot of people and develop like Mm -hmm. HR functions in your organization (laughs) and like the kinds of things that you know, aren't really part of what you like dream and vision about um, yeah. when you're imagining what you're going to do with your life. Um, yep. But, you know, now we have 15 full-time staff and that's a lot different from, we started with just me and Carol, my co-founder uh, about three years ago. And it's like a whole different kettle of fish now.
0: Mm. Well, congratulations on on what you've achieved. And I can relate to that experience of being an entrepreneur and, you know, knowing your trade really well. And then you overnight become the IT department and the HR department and <laughs> all of the above. And as always some nice surprises in there. Um, I. This is, you know, a special episode that we're doing today called The "Politics Is Female," and we're we're starting a new series where we want to talk about women who have a, kind of a handle on some, you know, important society issues uh, that that are, you know, part of the, the the conversation at the moment. And obviously, the environment is at the top of the list. Um, and we just, you know, we're coming out of elections in Canada. Um, Actually, uh, there was a a cabinet reshuffle that that just took place uh, yesterday. And um, I'm curious to know, for you right now, what is one of your most pressing or worrisome issues when it comes to the environment and specifically how Canada is handling it? Yeah. Oh boy. There's so many. It's, it's hard. It's hard to pick. I think uh, you can give me, you can give me a few, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> something I mean that
1: I think a lot about is sort of like the unique opportunities that Canada has. So Canada is home to some of the last wild spaces on the planet, literally. Mm-hmm. that's why mm-hmm. Canada is such a battleground for environmental issues. Cause We have huge reserves of oil and gas and minerals and trees. And we also are home to some of these last intact ecosystems on earth. And increasingly, there is a recognition that many of these landscapes also store a huge amount of carbon. You know, when you look at an old growth forest uh, or a peatland or a grassland, they store a huge amount of carbon. And when we destroy those to to mine or to cut trees down, um, you know, not only is it harmful in like the most obvious ways, but you're also releasing a ton of carbon into the atmosphere. And so that's something that's on my mind a lot in terms of how Canada is going to make sure that we protect enough of the the wild places that we have. And that really interacts with um Indigenous rights and the mm-hmm. place for indigenous led protection and, and conservation in Canada. And I think that's an area that can, you know, can be really hopeful in terms of really looking at how we can advance reconciliation and conservation hand in hand. Um, so there's that. On the and then on the flip side of course, you know, we have um the oil sands, which is, you know, kind of the never ending, like, you know, hot topic in Canada in terms of how much more oil are we going to allow to be um, dug out of the oil sands when it's quite a high, high carbon source of oil. Um, and in British Columbia, we have um, also like a lot of fracking going on. So fracking for yeah. natural gas um, and, and a lot of proposals and projects underway to build um, liquefied natural gas export projects, which are also very, very high carbon. Um, so I think these kind of big like carbon bomb projects are something that's, that are really important to to keep our eye on. And then the final thing I would say is just the biodiversity crisis. Um, Canada mm-hmm. does not do a good enough job of protecting its endangered species We have caribou herds that are blinking out right in front of our eyes um, and many other species as well. And it's just not talked about enough. Um, And our laws are are quite toothless uh, when it comes to actually making the hard decisions that have to happen to like not cut the critical habitat
0: of an endangered animal. This season of The Brand Is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice, plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect your workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Today's episode of The is Female is brought to you by Good Food. I love how dedicated Good Food is to continuously evolving and meeting the needs of busy Canadian food lovers. And well, just about anyone who relies on a nutritious home-cooked meal to get through their day. With our ever busier lifestyles, Good Food truly knows how to make Canadians' lives happier and healthier every day. Visit makegoodfood.ca to learn more about healthy meals delivered straight to your door and i have a question and i mean i you may be biased in your answer which is totally allowed um are media reporting on these issues you know in 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 the uh, efficient way, um, you know, and and I think that's the gap you're looking to fill with the Narwhal. And it's very exciting to see the partnerships that you've created to be able to share uh, your content with other platforms and to reach an even bigger audience in our country. But, you know, to start with, are we hearing enough about this? Are citizens informed enough through media about these issues? I think they definitely haven't been. I mean, part of the reason that we started the Narwhal is because
1: there was such a huge gap. There were almost no environment beat reporters left at major publications in Canada. And Mm so that created this kind of open playing field for us to come in and and report on what is, you know, one of the top of mind, most important issues of our time. I will say that I'm seeing some really, you know, major shifts in terms of how uh, traditional publications are starting to cover climate and want to cover climate and at least feel like they have to say that this is important to them. Like, I think we've seen a lot from the Globe and Mail and CBC recently also um, spoke to how they're going to be doing more on climate. Um, And I think that's really, really great to see. And I think there's just growing acceptance that you know, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. It's not an ideological or political issue. It's a all of humanity issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I still don't think that we see the resources dedicated to this, to the beat that we should, yeah. um, in yeah. traditional newsrooms for sure.
0: Right. How can we go about changing that? And I mean, I, I hate just putting the honest on, you know, media need to report more. So citizens are aware and then we expect citizens to put pressure on the government. I think everybody needs to work together here, but um, you know, are citizens able to influence that? Like, how can we make the situation change?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important for citizens who care about certain like types of reporting to support the outlets that do that kind of reporting. Right. Um, I mean, I think, Part of the role of the narwhal, for instance, is that we push other outlets to do better. Um, mm. You know, and that happens in sort of subtle ways. But when you look at the way that, like, you know, movements work and how change happens in society, it's not it's it is complex. Right. And so mm-hmm. just by the fact that we exist and we're reporting on these stories, it puts more pressure on the traditional players. Um and you know now like i say with 15 staff like we're the largest environment bureau in the country and so by you know supporting outlets like ours who do that work you're kind of creating a, a little bit of a shift in the canadian media landscape right across the board and mm-hmm. i would say you know yeah just really it's important for people to accept that good journalism takes money and to subscribe yeah. to the outlets
0: that they rely on for their news Yeah, and the model has changed, right? Because we, especially for publications that, you know, focus on environment issues or social issues, um, I'm guessing it's a little harder to get a lot of advertisers interested or there's categories of advertisers that you know you're not going to get support from and you depend on readers, basically.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's a general kind of shift in the news industry happening where advertising is making up less and less of of the pie. And so even, you know, somewhere like the Globe and Mail or the New York Times, they're relying more and more on audience revenue, which I think is ultimately a good thing because it shifts the relationship with the audience and it makes the audience more important. Um, Somewhere like the Narwhal, we don't run any advertising whatsoever. So we have no ads Mm -hmm. and we have no paywall. So anybody can read the Narwhal for free. And our whole model works off of the premise that a certain percentage of readers will voluntarily pay what they can for it to make it available to everybody else and mm. so far that's that's working out pretty well.
0: Now oh, that's great, glad to hear that. Um I kind of coming back on something we discussed a, a few questions ago but uh, again, the, the the question of, you know, are Atlas in Canada covering these issues enough? And I think one story that's been uh, really tough to follow has been Fairy Creek and, uh, you know, the cutting of, of old growth forests uh, in, in BC. Um, and it felt like, and this is, I think, where, you know, there is a benefit to social media platforms. We often talk about the negative side of social media, but with uh, you know, activists, advocates being very visible using their social platform, we were able to get access to information about what, what's what been going on in Ferry Creek, even before uh, national or bigger outlets started covering the story. And I'm still not convinced they're, they're really covering the story at length. Um, how, you know, what, what are your thoughts on I mean, I guess I have several questions in here, but first on how the government's handling the situation and also on media's responsibility in this specific story.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's such a good example of a story because it's, it's so complex and, and it's kind of a good showcase of how traditional media cover this type of story, which is that they're very drawn to conflict and they report on these stories in very episodic ways. So they report, mm. this many people were arrested today Mm -hmm. This person said this, that person said that end of story doesn't really help move the issue forward. Um, when in reality, yeah, the story is incredibly complex, um, you know, between the elected, uh, first nations government, um, supporting the logging and not necessarily wanting activists there, uh, debates around hereditary leadership, um, and and everything that goes with that and so i think it's you know i think it's really the type of story that takes more of a kind of deep dive to get into what's going on in terms of the government's response i think it really ties into this this bigger question of how do we create alternatives to cutting down forests when it comes to economic development and some of mm-hmm. that comes to you know valuing the ecosystem services and the carbon that that is that is in those trees so that uh, First Nations, for instance, and other communities can create financial sustainability for themselves by keeping forests standing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really where the government um, can stand in and, you know, step in and help provide alternatives because otherwise there's no realistic way out of these kind of very vexing uh, challenges. And, you know, thus far, yeah, the government's kind of throwing its hands up provincially, at least, and saying like, yeah, well, you know, the First Nation supports it and um, we've made some deferrals and it's, it's not kind of the systemic solution that we need, which is how do we create alternatives? It's not fair to, you know, say, you know, settlers have been here cutting down these forests for over a hundred years. And now the mm-hmm. moment that First Nations are getting tenure to the forests." Uh, we don't want them cut down anymore and we don't want any economic opportunity there, right? So there really needs to be an alternative in terms of conservation financing.
0: Mm. And um, we were just, we or I, I referred to um, the uh, government reshuffle that just took place following the elections. And, you know, we have a new environment minister, Stephen Gilbo, who in his past life was uh, an activist working at Greenpeace. Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of opinions shared since the the news came out. And, uh, you know, Jason Kenney, the Alberta premier, obviously uh, opposed that decision, calling out his past as an activist. Do you think that is a move in the right direction from the Trudeau government?
1: Well, I certainly think it sends a signal um, that the Trudeau government is uh, feeling serious about climate change in its its last years in power here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's kind of this double standard that happens around environmental expertise, which I see happen everywhere, which is that, you know, when somebody like let's look at it in the journalism sphere. If somebody ha- went to business school and worked in business and then they become a business reporter, Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense because they have business expertise and they understand how business works. If someone studied environmental sciences and worked um, for an environmental group and then becomes an environment reporter, we should look at it the same way. They have expertise Mm -hmm. in the environment. And, you know, I would say kind of the same thing about uh, ministries, right? It's like when we want a business or, you know, a minister of um, finance or, you know, the economy who knows business. Why wouldn't we want a minister of environment who knows environmental issues?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fair point. Um, did you ever feel in your role and maybe through a story that you broke, the publication broke, maybe did you, you know, are you ever threatened as a journalist covering environmental issues? Mm, I
1: mean, yes and no. There has been a real spike in online harassment of journalists lately. Um, It's not often, it's not super tied to what that journalist actually did. It's just kind of blanket, um, hateful, threatening messages. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny, but um, it's a sad reality, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's really not good. And it has, you know, serious mental health impacts, but of course, I've never been threatened specifically for something I actually, um, did, you know, there's been mm-hmm. a variety of, um, you know, unpleasant, kind of concerning, weird stalkery messages over the years. Um, Mm. but thankfully, um, nobody on our team thus far has, you know, really been threatened directly for the the actual reporting that they've Mm. done. Um, although it's getting, it is getting pretty close with this latest wave of online harassment and it's, you know, Mm. we're really, we're part of conversations with canadian association of journalists and other news organizations about how we can combat this because
0: yeah journalists
1: are just increasingly becoming targets of really hateful stuff
0: yeah yeah and we're seeing that around the world right and some there's some pretty violent incidents in some cases how how do you think you can tackle that or how can the industry try to address that
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it is just making sure that newsrooms are providing the support to staff um, when they're being Mm -hmm. targeted by stuff like that. I mean, we can't necessarily stop it, um, but we can enhance our security procedures, make sure everybody's trained in how to, you know, make sure that their online profiles and everything are secure, that none of their like personal information is available online. Um, and then to just, you know, really recognize and acknowledge like the very real, like mental health impacts of being targeted by stuff like this and Mm -hmm. make sure people have the support that they need, um, time off if they need it to, you know, to cope with it. I wish that I could stop it from happening altogether. Um, you know, I, I think there's a whole end of how to make sure that police departments actually do what they can to, identify the, you know, the culprits, uh, behind Mm -hmm. some of this stuff and make sure that they're prosecuted, um, that, that would really help too, because, you know, right now I think there's a sense that folks can, can do
0: this kind of thing with impunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would be, and just there's, there's kind of a link here, but, um, young women who, you know, are thinking of a career in journalism and maybe, you know, covering, uh, social and environmental issues. Um, what, what would be your tips, your advice to them?
1: Yeah. I mean, my advice would be to, you know, work really hard, be willing to, to kind of take the jobs that you can get to, to earn, you know, to gain experience. And it might not be, you know, you might not go straight into your dream job. I, I mean, I didn't even know what my dream job was when I graduated from college. Um, mm. I, you know, I started out as a copy editor and um, I took jobs in the copy editing vein because those were the only jobs that I could get. Um, although it turned out that I quite loved that. And as a skill, that has served me throughout the rest of my career. And, you know, sometimes it takes a little while of continuing to do good work, wherever you go, um, Mm. following your passions, however you can, you know, I wrote the green guide off the side of my desk for two years before it became like really my job. Um, And so to just, you know, follow that and do good work, however you can, wherever you are, even if that work, um, feels, maybe feels menial, um, Mm -hmm. at the time, like learning how to do all of those things is only going to benefit you in the long run. So you can't Mm -hmm. necessarily start out, you know, being like, you know, the top environment feature writer that maybe you aspire (laughs) to be, um, that you gotta, everybody, you know, has to start somewhere and it takes, it takes all of those skill sets to put together a publication like the Narwhal too. And it's not just Mm -hmm. the star reporters who make, you know, make a award-winning magazine. It's, it is the copy editors and the layout people and the people who respond to reader questions and reader emails. Every piece of that is so important.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's great advice. And I think it applies to other industries as well. Um, I'll ask the next question, which is usually how I wrap up conversations. I always love hearing answers from guests on The Brennan's Female. And in this case, I think, you know, I kind of want to throw in that obviously environment issues are intersectional and women's issues are connected. Um, you've referred to Indigenous issues as well. And in this context, what's one thing that women should be doing more or less of? Mm-hmm. I think we should be
1: doing more of lifting each other up mm-hmm. um, and making sure that we don't replicate any of the harms that maybe we experienced. So I think sometimes there can be a gut reaction, you know, like if you had a hard time coming up in the industry and you didn't get a fair chance and your bosses were mean to you that you replicate that culture, that wasn't very healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. So to just be aware of that and try to improve the culture and improve the experience, like I don't want any of my staff to have have to go through the same hardships that I went through. Mm -hmm. Um, That's part of the beauty of getting to build your own organization, right? Is to get to create that culture. Um, So yeah, doing more of that, doing less, doing less comparing. I think, uh, I just think comparison, uh, you know, it's the death of joy. Um, comparing yourself to other people. um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not about that. Like you need to be the best version of yourself and Mm -hmm. that's all that matters.
0: Mm, yeah no i i love that answer and agree uh 100 with you thank you so much emma it's been great getting to know you a little bit better thank you so much for your time and we'll uh we'll sign up for the narwhal and we'll we'll link to your site and anyone who can support obviously important to you know show up for our journalists especially when it comes to environmental issues so thank you so much wonderful thank you so much for having me this was fun I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, women entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brannies Female. You got it in you to succeed, let TD help guide you. Visit theBranniesFemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a week with a new guest. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.